سلام مادر جون به پادکست امروز خوش اومدین مادر جون در این پادکست راجع خواب دیدن های شما حرف میزنیم راضی هستین؟ Yes of course خب مامان اول این کار که میخوام شما بکنین دراز بکشین سرتون رو بذارین روی بالش چشارتون رو ببندین Okay. راحتین yes, اولین کار که میکنیم نفس میکشیم یک دو سه بکش تو بدن بیرون بکش تو بدن بیرون یک بار دیگه بکشیم بدن بیرون من میخوام راجه اولین خوابی که دیدین حرف بزنین میتونه یه رنگی باشه یه بوی خاص okay. I'm not talking about the colors or smell just I do remember I had a few dreams which it came to not all of them of course might be I saw dream almost two four times per month but few of them really came through and I would like to talk about one of them because I never couldn't believe it until now. About 30 years ago I dreamed one night which it was very specific days in Iran and everybody was so sad because there was a war between Iran and Iraq and I was so upset and at night when I slept I saw the blue mountains in my dream and never I had an, any program to come to Australia that days. And exactly what you see in Three Sisters and Blue Mountains, I saw it 30 years ago in my dream, which I couldn't believe it when I came to Australia. About 28 years ago and then after six months or seven months we went to Bulumantins and I started to cry because I saw that place in my dream. It is unbelievable 
Another I do not forget that dreams and that nights and that day which I saw in my Because I think on that night my destiny was right. And it's perfect. And it makes me very, very emotional. That's why I'm proud. And the place I am going before it comes in my dream, which is unforgettable. الان میخوام شما چشاتون رو ببندیم فقط صدای نفستون گوش بدیم نفس بکش نفس بکش یک بار دیگه این اولیش بود که راجوش هفصدیم The second very important dream I had It was The night you wanted to burn In the morning On that night I dreamed my father my father, even I didn't know my baby is boy or girl. My father came in my dream because my, my father was passed away on that time. He came in my dream and he was riding the horse, white horse. And he came knocked my door and he said, you are gonna have a boy tomorrow morning. Two days later, I have to go to hospital for delivering my baby. And even I couldn't believe it, exactly the time my father said. And also he said to me, I am going to have a boy. And um, that morning, I went to hospital with lots of pain. And when the doctor said, I have a boy, I said his name is Hussein. Because my father's name was Hussein. I loved that dream. And I loved my father, my father's name, to put on my son. Man as Bachigi in... رویای خاطرتون رو یادم میاد ولی یادم میگفتین باباتون روی اسب بود میتونین راجع این حرف بزنین اسب چه رنگی بود Never I do not forget his face 
and just he knocked my door and I opened the door, I saw my father on the horse. And then he said, you are gonna be happy, you are gonna deliver a baby boy tomorrow morning. Exactly when I woke up, and then you can believe it after might be one hour, my pain started and I went to hospital. Two days before doctor's bed to me to go and deliver baby. Exactly the time my father told me I delivered my baby. Anymore. Because I didn't do sonography or anything I wanted. I wanted to surprise myself and the family. Of course, it wasn't different for me, boy or girl. But I don't know how come my father came to my dream and he sent me a message. This is really unbelievable. فکر میکنین چرا پدرتون اومده با یه اسب سفید که این مسیج رو به شما بده I think maybe there is a two reason why my father came to my dream because I am the last child of the family this is the first reason and my father likes me and I love him so much. And the second reason might be he wanted to send me a message. I keep his name for the family. That's why I think so. Shoma fek mikonin ke haq adama fot mikonan badan az in dunya miran روشون میتونه تو دریم شما بیاد Yes I do believe that because I do believe that when somebody passed away their body is gone their mind and their soul never is not gone always is better That's why I think my father always were looking at me and he knew it about my life. Might be he couldn't talk to me straight away, but might be in dream, in my dream he's coming, or my mother sometimes is coming, and they talk to me. This is my belief. نفس بکش یک نفس دو نفس سه نفس
My first dream, I was about nine years old. And one of my brothers wanted to go to Germany. And one of my brothers, he wanted to go to Germany for continuous study. And when he finished his HSC, he begged my father to go overseas for study to university. And my father first, he doesn't want to, but later he accepted. And my brother sent his uh, documents and certificates, HSC certificate, everything to one of the university in Köln in Germany. And then he was waiting for so long, might be four months, five months, and he didn't get any answer and he becomes so sick and upset. And then one night I dream my brother, I see my brother in the moon. I was just nine years old. And I don't know, I couldn't believe it. What is my brother doing in the moon? And then in the morning when I woke up, I said to my mother, mother, I, I saw this dream last night. I saw Javad in the moon. And my mother said, what? What is he doing in the moon? I said, I don't know. I saw him in the moon. And then nobody couldn't believe it after, after a couple of hours. The postman came to the door and he gave us his Acception University paper, which they sent from Germany and they accepted my brother go to that university and study. And everybody was hugging me and kissing me and my mother said, how come you did this dream? And anyway, I saw that dream and these things happened. Just I was nine years old. And I do remember the only dream on that age I saw, it was this. Raja Moon Ziyad Hafmizanin to your dream atun, your masalan, khali as میدونین چیزا که ستوری ها که اکسپلین میکنین همیشه راجع مونه میتونین به بگین این مون برای شما چی رپرزنت Moon give you comfort. Moon can makes you quiet, calm. 
And why think this is the reason? I don't know. I love moon. And of course, I love sun as well. I love all the solar system. But the moon for me is very different. Of course, the closest star to the moon is my name. It is Nahid. The shiny one and the closest one. The Hunger Games fan fiction, Art of War. I haven't watched part four of The Hunger Games yet. I want to, but I also don't because I'm nervous that it won't meet my expectations and I heard it was bad. Not that that's ever a deciding factor of whether I will or will not watch a movie, but I cried a little bit in part two of The Hunger Games and I don't think I'll ever get that feeling back. It was actually really moving. Part two was called Catching Fire. And that's what it did to my heart when I watched it with my flatmate Emily at Hackney Picture House after we were kind of forced to sit through the first one at her best friend's house in Leeds following a forgotten night of ketamine and dick tricks and I fell in love with Jennifer Lawrence. 
I cried at the part where Philip Seymour Hoffman reveals himself as a surprise leader of the insurgents who tricked Katniss into being part of the rebellion and were first introduced to President Julianne Moore. Then there's music and hope and so many utopian answers to real-world problems that are set up in this thinly-veiled young adult science fiction come blockbuster franchise that everyone says Coffee's Battle Royale is a standard, but only insofar as it's a brutal depiction of children being forced to kill each other by their government. Just repeat that sentence. That sentence? Mm-hmm. Or maybe, yeah. Let's start over again. Okay. Can you stop this? No, just keep going. Start from the beginning? No, from the second paragraph. It reminds me of hedge fund boss and crooked billionaire who started at the bottom, Bobby Axelrod, in that TV show Billions, when he says that the only thing that does it is YouTube videos of soldiers coming home to their children when in-house psychologist and a wife of his foil character, U.S. Attorney Paul Giamatti, asks if anything makes him cry. Axelrod is kind of responsible for letting his friend die by not telling him about a cancer treatment trial and doesn't feel bad about it and is wondering if he's finally lost all empathy. Life coach and motivator Wendy says not quite, but he's nearly there. The business drama is all military strategy where nobody gets murdered yet. And I bet Axe Capital employees read Sun Tzu's Art of War because apparently people in competitive fields do that and everyone is always desperate and greedy and precarious. So naturally I'm going to draw a thin narrative thread through to contemporary artists all over Lyric Sun Zubas and my feelings about art as a concept extraneous to itself. It's a sculpture inspired by the Roman two-faced god Janus that I saw in a catalog about an exhibition called Rare Earth, named after the role of rare earth metals and everything shit about humanity. I wonder if the reference to Art of War and the Two Faces is a play on the reversibility of the phrase in reference to its interrelationships. Art of War, as in War of Art, as in Same Same, as in Behold This Relic of Mass Violence in a Gallery Space, as representative of that uncomfortable association between art and a thing we call civilization. Which as a conceptually hinges on dominance and control. Often, most of the time, my opinions on things, art, shift, depending on other people's opinions on things, art. Like the times Tom smirked about the work of this artist I liked, and I smirked unconvincingly in reply because I didn't get the in-joke, but I was trying to pretend I did. There's this last thing that Caroline calls the pyramid of success which is basically lasting long enough in any field until everyone else gives up on their aspirations, leaving you to collect on the spoils. It's a waiting game, at least for those unlucky enough, which I guess is a lot of people, not to have something more useful than art to trade on, like skills or looks or rich parents. Katniss waits it out a lot by hiding from the kids that are trying to kill her in the arena in the Hunger Games. Enabled by the food, water, and resources allocated by philanthropic sponsors who help marginally if they feel like it. 
It's weird how people with less privilege and fewer rights are referred to as marginal, because that implies there aren't so many of them, but there are so many of them in the Hunger Games and in the world. But then a margin doesn't necessarily need to be small. In fact, there are so many definitions of margin that I can't actually explain what it means, except the space around the printed or written matter on a page, which doesn't really relate to people and their living conditions at all. Or maybe it does, because after all, it's a language, which is everything. Also, a limit in condition, capacity, etc., beyond or below which something ceases to exist, be desirable, or be possible. I almost can grasp this, but I also can't. They talk a lot about margins and billions. These ones sound big and impressive and affect the wealthy, but I also don't understand what they are. Like when Bobby Axelrod explains how he's made some win, eat or be eaten, and I have no idea what he's talking about, but margin comes up, and I'm sure I would find it more interesting if I worked in finance. That's probably in the same way that I used to talk to boys about music in a lexicon made up of in-group markers that their bored girlfriends didn't care about. Like, why at the drive-in is better than Mars Volta, and how the owner of some label who was dating a lesbian followed me home after a music industry party and heated up my housemate's pasta from the fridge when I wouldn't have sex with him. I'm not actually sure how those two things are related to each other, or anything. Except that every industry is full of dudes who will try to fuck you. There's no room for a conscience in art, kind of like how Cadmus was pretty much fucked from the beginning when she knew everyone else had to die if she was going to survive. Like, the game is fucked, the system is fucked, everyone's a loser, except the winner, of course. Then the winner just ends up going to parties in the capital, where people puke to eat more food and pretend that they're happy when they're miserable because they want to really feel something, you know, like being punched, or arrested, or hungry, or bombed, or destitute, or exploited, or... I have this image, something someone said about someone I know. Well, not someone I know, but someone I know of, that I think is kind of vapid and rude. But the image is her crying on the bed of a five-star hotel about how hard life is, while posting selfies of her boobs and hanging out with celebrities. And this isn't even Hollywood, it's art. I mean, it isn't Hollywood, because that's where the art, I mean, the artists are these days. But I think it's the same now. Was it ever not? I don't want to go into too much detail about the art world being crap, because everyone knows that. But we all still do it. Gleefully trampling each other's fragile eagles to... Gleefully trampling each other's fragile egos to get ahead for some reason. To where, I don't know. If I make the art political, am I a better person? Maybe I'm worse. I have this fantasy of moving to Hollywood, dating Kristen Stewart and ending up in Google search when you type in Kristen Stewart girlfriend. You type it into images and it would be me. Me. Finally happy and nameless in a Los Feliz celebrity compound for lesbians where paparazzi wait outside to jeer and take your picture as collateral. That would make me really happy. I was talking about it with Dan the other day, about the fact that being an artist is like celebrity, except that there's no money in it, unless you're a big artist, preferably pretty, mostly young. Maybe there is no difference. There's not really much difference in billions either. 
I've been watching it despite myself and the grandiose Machiavellian narrative for men with inferiority complexes. They're into fetish and allude to rape whenever they fuck someone over. There's a part at the end of episode 3 where Paul Giamatti passes the stranger he humiliated once on a morning walk in New York City by making him pick up his dog shit with his bare hands to the soundtrack of Edwin Starr grunting war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Then at the beginning of episode 4, the guy who's the weakest link of Axe Capital and is definitely going to get fucked over at some point is getting drunk and shooting deer outside his mansion with a machine gun because he feels existential and inadequate while the soft indie folk song plays repeating the bridge We are the homeless sociopaths I mean, as I said, I haven't watched Hunger Games 4 yet and I might never watch it but in part 3 the vibe is Julianne Moore's arising megalomaniacal Mao Zedong type figure I'm going off her updated Zongshan tunic suit at the same time as J-Law's celebrity revolutionary status deconstructs the pop cultural machinations of liberal democracy through manipulative propagandist tactics on both ends. Left and right, right and wrong, if those are still things. And it's inspiring and a head fuck because the meta question is, what am I supposed to believe when I'm watching this high critique of what is essentially the politicized US entertainment industry through the lens of a multi-million dollar teen film franchise? I'm so curious what happens in part 4, but I'm nervous and nihilistic, so it would only be disappointing. And I'm told it's disappointing, and I don't want to know what devastating blow to the notion of women's empowerment is dealt with when Jennifer Lawrence inevitably picks one of her male suitors. The one who waits, or the one who violently loves her into submission to live happily ever after. I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to get into it. Like I never do by not voting. I'm sure K-Punk accelerationist Mark Fisher has done a better job on it than I ever could. Some kind of academicized socialist stance in an essay on why kids today are uncreative and capitalism has fucked itself. By his book. There's a lot of illiberal superhero figures in art, and really weird neoliberal means of interpreting neoliberal critique like working with trends and appropriating struggle and appearing edgy and on it by aligning yourself with causes you heard about last week on Facebook in a millennial interpretation of the other recession era, late 80s champagne socialism. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why The Hunger Games is so fascinating because it's the clearest indication of what activism and art, entertainment, anything, means, which is nothing. I watched part one of part three of The Hunger Games, so that's part three before part two of part three, which is part four. It's called Mockingjay, part one, taking its name from a fictional hybrid result of a failed government experiment breeding mockingbirds with another fictional bird called a Jabberjay in The Hunger Games universe. I watched it with an ex, and I was already underwhelmed, and I thought, the Hanging Tree song, sung a cappella by Katniss, was awkward and weirdly specific about its historical references, and I had to explain to my ex's friend, who isn't a native English speaker, what liberal democracy meant before I could elaborate on my mixed feelings on the defense of argument that I'm worried Mocking Jay, part two, might start to represent. Mm -hmm. 
that's especially when leader of the liberation movement, Julianne Moore, is acting more and more corruptible. And I have all of these negative emotions connected to part three, and thus all of the Hunger Games, because my axe is all over it. And I can't look at Jennifer Lawrence's face without feeling triggered, which is maybe the real reason I don't want to watch Mockingjay, part two, or the film franchise, like everything, reaches its inevitably unsatisfactory end. And... maybe so there's this thing that sometimes I kind of run out of energy and have to stay in bed for a whole day it happens from time to time I've tried to keep track of the frequency but so far there's no recognizable pattern This is not a big surprise since there aren't that many recognizable patterns anywhere else in my life. I don't work Monday till Friday or 24-7. I work a little here and there and unfocused on several things at a time and then when there's a deadline approaching I keep working longer and start panicking. I don't really consider myself having hobbies. So in highly idiosyncratic intervals ranging from once a month to three days a week I just stay in bed or return to bed around noon after I got up in the morning after having coffee and reading the paper, after having started reading and answering emails, after planning if there's anything on my schedule that has to be done today. Actually, I started writing this in bed, which felt quite weird. Frequent attempts of reclaiming the bed as a site of work have been made in the past. I was seeing somebody for a while who lived in another city, actually another country was kind of busy, so from time to time we tried working in bed. Some sort of compromise for not being able to actually clear a schedule for the three or four days we saw each other every month. There were parts about it which I liked. 
writing emails to people I was working for with at the time, a curator, an eBay seller, an art history professor, while being naked and just a tiny bit aroused sometimes made me giggle. You really start wondering what all those people in your inbox might have been up to while writing to you. There's a catalogue for a rather shitty group show I was in that, if I have a look at it now, I remember color correcting the images while having sips of champagne in bed. For a while, this felt very contemporary, very digital bohem, very bringing sexy back. It seems to be somewhat of a common phenomenon. After having had a quick exchange with Andrew about all this, he sent me an article from the Wall Street Journal, according to which around 80% of young New Yorkers have repeatedly worked in bed since 2014. The number seems quite high, and I'm not exactly sure how precise a sociological instrument the term young New Yorker might be. But still, it sounds very hip, very post-office. An exhibition concept based on that article makes it sound like this, quote, A unique horizontal architecture is taken over between the bed inserted in the office and the office inserted in the bed. It is magnified by the flat networks of social media that have themselves been fully integrated into the professional, business and industrial environment in a collapse of traditional distinctions between private and public, work and play, rest and action." Unquote. All of this is of course very different than going back to bed alone because you feel physically super tired. So these days, besides taking the occasional note or browsing information that I think could lead to some vague idea, I don't work in bed. If I get lucky, I read. If it sucks, I'll watch TV shows. That and the weird parasympathetic online routines of checking your three or four favorite websites every 20 minutes. On the train recently, I overheard somebody saying, so this guy asked me for directions and I got out my phone to look them up and out of reflex start checking Facebook while this guy is still looking at my phone. It was so embarrassing. I mean, it's not all bad. At least my profession, very low-level success artist, does allow for that kind of, well, lifestyle, I guess. At least I own a laptop that looks very elegant when taken to bed with me. In the summer, when the temperature is high, my MacBook tends to overheat when placed on the mattress, so I use books to elevate it. I curate this elevation book selection carefully. Typing calls for a large format size book, so the laptop doesn't wobble. Today I'm using Bob Nika's fabulous Painting Abstract, New Elements in Abstract Painting. For TV watching, where circulation of air out-prioritizes non-wobbliness, I use a rotating system of big-ass books containing Roberto Bolaño's 2666, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, Peter Nader's Parallel Stories and Collected Works of Sigmund Freud. This is very entertaining to me. Another thing is that I actually wonder how people who don't do this keep up with all the culturally significant TV shows. There's the Swiss publishing house for high-end theory which started a series of books about contemporary TV. One author writes about one show for each book. 
So far, there are 14 books and were you to watch all the shows discussed there, you would have spent a total of 55 days, 5 hours and 24 minutes in front of your screen. Maybe at this point it's not super surprising that I was once diagnosed with endogenous depression when I was 16. This feels very different. Fortunately, a lot of things feel very different these days. Back then, it took three years of therapy and moving to the big city to snap out of it. Back then, I didn't have a computer I could take to bed with me. No screen that made you forget your body. No endless list of episodes. Staying in bed back then was actually pretty painful. It was like surrendering and having to face the fact that you might have a serious problem. Reading was frustrating because I had a hard time concentrating and kept losing track even mid-main clause. Oftentimes I tried to talk the cat into keeping me company but even she got bored. She had better things to do. Outside my bedroom there were mice to kill and rugs to be peed on. In therapy I learned to obsess over autobiographical data which could be blamed for these episodes. In a rather bleak session, the therapist's face lit up when I told him that, after being born, I had some weird bacteria infection of the brain and had to stay in the hospital for a couple of weeks. He made a very well-worded argument about how those episodes he called dissociations, I called them going numb, somehow echo lying in a hospital bed as a newborn, tactile stimuli reduced to a minimum. And while this was somehow fascinating and, well, pleasing in the way elegant symmetry sometimes can be, I was also horrified. I didn't dare to ask. Okay, cool. So now what? I'm not sure if. Would somebody shut down the internet and all the instant entertainment and distractions that come with it? I would start feeling as desperate and fucked up as I did back then. I don't know if staying in bed all day in 2016 is another round of the same depression it was in 2003. And I'm just unable to tell because of technological progress and the access to devices that make it really easy to avoid dealing with your shit. I know one difference though. This time I don't want it to be depression. I rarely talk about this. But when I do, I call it exhaustion or lazy days. Sometimes burnout, but I use a sarcastic voice for that. When I was 16, I was somehow, well, quote unquote, happy about being a proper clinical depressive. It was an identity and a kind of safety net. A concept of self that included the idea of not being able to do certain things. I think what sucks about it is that in a way the mental health problem narrative makes all this into a personal problem. Of course, we are very considerate about calling it a proper illness because of the awkward history of marginalizing and locking up the mentally weird. But the concepts and causes stay vaguely private. It's 
still your genetics, your choice of profession, your income situation, your diet, your brain chemistry, your level of education, your parents, your ability to deal with stress. What about your politics? Before I let you go, one last thing I need to let you know. You ain't never seen nothing crazy then. This nigga went to y'all his Lexapro. Remember that last time in Mexico? Remember that last time the episode? Asking me why the hell I test the code. Four times as I say, don't text me, ho. Told you four times, don't test me, ho. And we finna lose all self-control. But you ain't finna be raising your voice at me. Especially when we in the Giuseppe snow. But I'ma have the last laugh in the end. Cause I'm from a truck, I'll check a hoe. Yeah, I'ma have the last in the end cause I'm from a child I'll check the home and I I refuse to accept this as a personal problem I do a lot of book shopping in bed when you spend hours aimlessly drifting from hyperlink to hyperlink you'll stumble across interesting stuff by sheer statistical probability a weird unheard of author crazy theory stuff that could really add to my work or a book that just looks so pretty and full of potential to make my life more interesting. So, I order stuff online. Early in the morning and in the middle of the night, there are of course no opening hours on the internet. While I'm very careful and hesitant about inviting other people to my bed, it's very personal, you know. I spend a lot of time there. It smells like me. I do allow a few of the biggest corporations in the world to enter this very private space. My bed has become a site of exchange, not in a fun way. I'm advertised to while staying in bed. I produce content and data. I buy shit I don't need. Because after laying in bed for 8 hours straight you will get sad at some point. Sometimes I wonder if staying in bed all day actually makes me the perfect customer. A TV show with a running time of almost 50 hours and a story so dense that you basically can't afford to miss anything. This type of visual event has to somehow train its viewing subject into being able to spend a lot of time immobile, gaze fixed at a single point. How does that actually work? To this day, I still haven't seen that long Belatar thing, and that's a mere 7 hour running time. Recently I saw the Berlin Biennial, and just like you'd expect, there's the jaw-dropping CGI, the high-end camera work, the high-res surfaces, the high-def materials and production staff sizes close to big-budget TV advertisement. What surprised me was the almost ridiculous density of rather low-end opportunities to sit down. The exhibition is full of benches, chairs and pillows, and some of them are quite ugly. Of course nobody wants to watch a 40 minute video leaning against the wall. But there is something funny going on when the guy next to you collapses onto the couch like a bag of wet towels going oof. While the 70 inch screen in front of you presents one of those crazy over post body fictions you probably saw on the internet. Most of the exhibiting artists are around the same age as me. I imagine them being way too busy to spend much time in bed. 
when I taught a workshop at an art school for the first time and some of the students complained that the readings were too hard or extensive. I told them that I don't know any lazy artist. It was a bit of a dick thing to say. I mean, I was in the midst of my pretentious face and made them read fucking Wittgenstein. And while I'm not sure if it's factually wrong, the there are no lazy artists thing, I think ideologically it is. I mean, I don't want to glorify shitty genius-based artist fictions like drinking bathtubs of red wine and pissing into fireplaces and all that stuff. There's obviously a lot wrong with that and we got rid of those macho ideals for a reason. But what about deviations and soft transgressions and negotiating things and, you know, working conditions? As an artist, why do I feel like a failure when I spend a day in bed instead of feeling like an avant-gardist? How can I be thinking about starting therapy again and keep hesitating to delete my fucking Amazon account? Why do I vaguely tell my friends that I was doing office stuff all day instead of proudly admitting that I watched half a season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Why do I worry about being considered lazy? When did I become so professional? And if that's the case, why do I earn so little money? When did we become so afraid? First notes and little insinuations about using all this as material for projects, like talking about it in public. Go back for a while now. I always hesitated. I tried to imply that the reason it takes me forever to finish projects lies in the extensive research my work needs. Putting the information out there that I spend a lot of time in bed might change that narrative. I guess me and most of my friends vaguely agree on rejecting the idea of a certain type of artist whose production is mainly market-centric. A production that generates awe through the factual value of its used material. Through the sheer impressiveness of being able to pull that shit off by being backed by a big gallery or rich parents and, you know, the guy with the dancing robot and all that. But I'm losing track here. What I want to say is, I guess it's one thing to reject those strategies for ideological reasons. It's a whole different story to realize that maybe you physically wouldn't be capable of playing that game even if you wanted to. Somehow, it seems very unprofessional to talk about staying in bed a lot. I mean, sure, I talk to people about Bifo Berardi or Alain Ehrenberg, and then we say stuff like senior capitalism and we nod in agreement. The highly precarious freelance curator has become somewhat of a cheap joke. It's not like these things aren't talked about, but it seems whenever they are, all the messy subjectivity is erased. Bruce Hanley once told me about a conversation he had with a rather well-known artist who complained about being stuck in the infamous LA traffic every morning on his way to the studio. And one day he realized how he's just one more guy commuting to work. And how very much this has become a regular job. Bruce smiled and said, well, it doesn't have to be. The notion of staying in bed all day is some kind of Bartleby-style refusal to participate in a neoliberal mess that is our everyday life. It's hard to keep up these days. Not a lot of people seem to think that there is still some kind of outside. But, like as artists, don't we kind of produce fiction for a living? It's weird. 
I'm not really the manifesto type. I always feel like they are more for the vitalists. But I had 10 different endings for this and every single one sucked. At one point of all the people I even quoted Chris Burden. So what the hell, I'll try. If you're fucked up, use the means of artistic production to address exhaustion on a level that is more complex than doing a spa day once in a while. Invent ways to talk to your friends. Fucking start considering your colleagues as friends. Blame capitalism, not yourself. Instead of worrying if you might be working too little, start asking if they might be working too much. Have a sip of champagne in bed, even when you're alone. After all, you could be forced into becoming an Uber driver any day now. Design of the self. The 
Self today is more of a banality than a novelty. The internet-aware generation realized the photo of the self is more widely distributed and viewed than the object. The self has become equated and engaged with the social conditions of production today, and in doing so, has become industrialized. Available for sharing, liking, and liberating, the now neoliberal object after human shadows existing cultural moments of the now rather than radically destroying them in favor of the very essence of the self as being present. Since the birthright of the selfie donned our single screens in 2013, those who chose to technologically engage became creators of themselves fighting for their right to loiter on their digital selves became a current topic in the midst of a whole discourse on narcissism, shallowness and disinnovation of the self. Self-referential aesthetics, using the self as sight, the self as economy, and the self as mortality. Let's look closer at the new found image ecology, screen culture, and peer-to-peer -peer aesthetic foundations through valorization of the self image. Teenager post 14606. For every good selfie, there is 47 failed ones. Pre-2003, Western society often turned to language as a tool of disseminating the soul to others via text, music, literature and conversation. At that point, language was much more effective than a photograph. Post-2003, MySpace was launched and we started to learn to create with ease, self-design. Images that acted as global conversations inside our ever-growing networked community. Previously, we created content for others now we have been encouraged to primarily create content for ourselves. First and network second. At an accelerated rate, the body was capitalized on whilst the body became numbed, shortened, out of breath, and eventually mute. By 2013, selfie was announced the new word of the year. Ironically, 
and following that the introduction of emojis, abbreviations like lol and tbh. We dodge the poetics of our time in favor of acronyms. A selfie a day keeps the friends away. Talking when we can skim, swipe, and like a person in a matter of minutes. This is an ideal social change as it acts as a time saving device, allowing you to spend more time exfoliating and priming your own personal pixels. The contemporary digital self no longer needs the pattern cutter to gain respect or fame. The selves merely need the engineer to provide them with a technologically mirrored wall that they can fill with their own gaze. Not too dissimilar, some may argue, to Narcissus' own water source in the Greek myth, where he falls in love with his own reflection. Contemporary version of the pool is more in keeping with our afflicted units of societal attention deficit disorder than the long lingering gaze of narcissists. The user tries to create perfection inside the screen, hoarding selfies as mementos like a serial killer collects its victim's shoes, hair, or newspaper cuttings of the crime, enabling a gateway for them to relive their crimes, or in the case of the user, their own lives. the hysteric crises of the self and then optimizing it before sharing the improved version is a coping mechanism of the society we live in. We are constantly told to update and improve ourselves. Mobile phones and devices are designed to be responsive and spontaneous to work at the level of fulfillment. Yet this focus on the self-creators not only just something mandated by neoliberalism. As Marx himself offered profit a worldview where humanity is its own self-creator. Relentlessly he spoke a need to continue with one's own self-creation through one's own knowledge and freedom. The new self-maker is the global proletariat. Believe in your selfie. 
as data goes, nothing is fixed. I.e. everything can be anything. A selfie is therefore not an image of oneself, but the character of one's being, a spirit. The very essence and soul of the object is capable of becoming another type of object, because that very object, the self, is in flux. We understand that every day our bodies change. They grow older, our dead skin cells shed, but we are constantly ourselves, held between multiple installations of what we know as human. Another aspect of the digital self post-2003 deals with the nature of its reception and social presence. Attention has always been a currency, but with the proliferation of networking methods and an infinite number of reproducible media outlets and proxies, the attention source has segued into a few hybrid outlets, such as YouTube, Facebook and Instagram through which the user self can navigate and upload without interruption. This is a state of valorized aesthetics, which are images that are not directly gaining income from their quote-unquote visual brand of capital culture. Think Instagram stars, where the viewer, peer or follower can find ultimate pleasure, unlimited time taking on the role of the hipster starlet or gawker within a certain peer group. Here the digital self then becomes an inverted work of nature and a sublime standardization. In other words, the unnaturally digitally mastered self is glorified by likes and shares, allowing other selves to subsume their identities in the primary digital self. This can then lead to market endorsements of products to the primary player self, who lavishes them on Instagram with appropriately branded hashtags. Anything from hype sneakers to luxury holidays and hard cash can be a form of currency that will then algorithmically be passed on via the feed to 10k plus followers. Nice doing business with today's masses and their fondness of over-identification with the Uber self. When you take a selfie so good, you can't believe it's you. Ironically, life at present for most selves is ultimately precarious. 
and it is not difficult to see why one would want to reinvent and revive the new you as often as possible. With housing crisis and high unemployment, closing down physical geographical space quicker than the people can walk out of the door to contest it, it's no wonder people find solace in the 1080 by 1080 pixel unit that offers its glowing walls to the user, asking them to decorate and adorn the rooms with nothing but themselves. Freud may argue that this is a case of contemporary replay. The human psyche has a tendency, he argued, to repeat cases of abuse or happiness in one's daily life, hoping to fix and alter the outcome. So we must become stuck in a perpetual state of replaying these moments, hoping to improve or reset the memory. Our memories today are digital tombstones of our lives celebrated by other people's clicks of admiration or mini commentaries and shares. Does this in turn offer us the point of negation of the self? The self that uses our personal devices is so chatty and promiscuous. It could be perhaps more likened to a poltergeist than a physical body. It's hard to miss you when you post a selfie every day. The immaterial self today wanders aimlessly through the feeds of the internet, looking for attention, for someone to see it, literally to unveil it like the contents of a sheer, transparent PVC rucksack worn by a veteran's decked youth. Just hoping you ogle the contents long enough to see they smoke. Holographic Vogue Slim cigarettes have feasted on a vegan energy bar for lunch. The wrapper is slipped slightly into the curled pages of Emma Klein's book, The Girls. Just notice me. Notice my lifestyle. See me. The digital ghost whispers. Corpses lay somewhere between the object and the subject, and nothing so clearly unifies this than in Rihanna's video, Bitch Better Have My Money. She is naturally one of the key primary players. Her whole persona is emblematic of the modern discourse of the self. Capture, upload, retake, edit, post, or delete. The video's basic plotline is that Rihanna kidnaps her accountant's wife and holds her to ransom. He proves to be a misogynistic game player who has little interest in paying or taking his wife back. 
This leads Rihanna through various costume changes and continents until she finally levels with him face to face. I say face to face. She's towering over him in a gravity-defying liquid nude stilettos with a ray of knives, gun and knuckle dusters neatly labelled with phrases like Cheetah Leaving the toilet seat up and fuck my credit Whilst he sweats it out in his white collar elaborate Beverly Hills mansion armchair Rihanna is dressed head to toe in nude latex, fetishized, yes, but also unveiled her latex gloves, skin, the flick blades, and machetes like one swipes through their Instagram via their iPhone 6. Symbolically, her inner self is wrapped in a synthetic sheath, a screen of technology, but one false move will split the sheathed faux skin, and she will, as far as the digital self goes. It also has an iconic response to pain. The air of misrepresenting oneself is as fatal as the blades she caresses. reveal a huge trunk with her bloody legs draped out of one side as the camera pans round you see Rihanna naked splattered in blood lying amongst dollar bills and absently smoking a cigarette the credits start to roll and her face fills the screen streams of blood run down her forehead. She blinks, defiant, steadfastly. She returns our gaze. Naked and running on adrenaline, she is left with the mementos of the modern day fight, the blood and dollars of another person's life at the cost of one's own preservation of the self. If you could take a selfie of your soul, would you find it attractive enough to post? The digital self has an immortalizing effect on the body. It turns moments of life into data that can be uploaded, browsed, two days from now or 20 years from now. Is today's selfie culture just a low-cost DIY cryonics procedure for the masses. No one wants to be forgotten after all. Is this culture in fact prepping for the digital immortality? The future post-body uploads in full HD. Could this be the moment in life we most feel like ourselves?
هر من بچه بودم یادم میاد که شما خوابای غیر طبیعی دیدیم یه که مخصوصا با من موند راجه خانم که پایای اصد داشت پایای اصد داشت؟ پایای اصد داشت حالا نمیدونم این خواب بود؟ یا یه چیزی که خودتون راست من میتونم بهتون تعریف کنم این چیزی که من یادم شما بچه بودین یه اون موقع تو غزبین زندگی میکردین بعدن همون که نداشتین تو خونتون بعد میرفتین همومای اون بزرگا که همه میرن با هم کمیونو بعدن اون تو یه خانومه دیدین توی آب بود بعدن رفتین جلو و میدین که پاش پای اصد داره یادتون میاد؟ نو آی کن ریمیمبر دات دریم بات آی دو ریمیمبر انادر دریم ویچ آی واز پرایمری سکول استیودنت مایت بی ایباد سیون ایج یرز Sometimes even I couldn't believe it, it is dream, might be it was true, I don't know. Uh, our school was very, very old building. And then, of course, too many classrooms on the top of the land, but under the ground also there was a hole. A big hole? Uh, In Farsi language, we call it Zirzamin, which is under the ground. Underground. And then, uh, normally in the school, all the rubbishes, papers, of course, uh, they were put in there. They were clocked in on that place. And I do remember when we were kids, normally, the parents, if they wanted to scare the kids, they were talking about the ghosts. 
I was a primary school student mm -hmm. and I was going to that school. And I do remember I saw the ghosts. Too many, not, not just one. Might be five, six ghosts. I saw on that place they were living there. And I can remember even I scared or I didn't scare. I can remember that, but still their face is front of my eyes. Long hair, long nail, and different clothes and different eyes, like that. They were making the fire, and they go around the fire, and they were being dancing, singing, something like that. Uh, I don't think so, they saw me, no. But Still, sometimes I think might by middle of the night because our home, my father's place, was very close to that school, just behind the school. And sometimes I think might be I be there and I saw them. Or sometimes I think, no, it's not possible, just I saw three. Which was because it was so you know, natural to me. It wasn't like a dream. Now when I grew up, I understood that. Ghost is not the person. I want to ask you again. I want to ask you again. I want to ask you again. دوباره منم یه خاطره الان یه چیزی دیگه اومد به ذهنم یادم گفتین خودتون تو آینه نگاه میکردین یه دفعه یه مرد که هم مرد بود هم اسب دیدین پشتتون توی آینه اینو یادتونه؟ I remember I saw something on very young age when I was but not anymore yeah, I saw something like that. But I cannot remember exactly what was it. Was the horse, was the human, but I saw something. ولی من این خاطره رو یادمه. من یادمه چون مخصوصا روز این دو تا چیزا حفظ زدم. اون زنه که تو آب بود حالا نمیدونم اگه الان دارین الکی خودتون میذارین خونه علی چا. نمیدم چرا راجش حرف نمیزنیم بسید که این ستوری ها خیلی چند بار به هم گفتیم نمیدم اگه الان که در این رکادتون میکنیم نمیخوام but never I didn't see the lady with the horse shape and might be it was a story I read it for you a long time ago might be from the books or these things No, I remember how many stories I told you how many stories I told you what did I say? یه خانومه توی آب بود 
رفتین نزدیکتر فهمیدین که پاش پرمو بود We went to a very, very long way. It was, I think, in Litko somewhere on that area. And then I saw the lady over there, which she was telling the future. But do you know she had uh, three fingers? In both hands, three fingers. And both feet, three fingers. not five and it was so natural in her body and she had uh, seven kids and she was so young but she had a very very different face but she had you think she's very innocent she's very very calm and And especially when I saw her fingers, I said, oh my God, she must know something, you know? I saw it, the people before, for example, one hand, they had three fingers or four fingers or one feet, not both hands and both feet, three fingers. I can't tell you just one. Do you know they drink the coffee and then they see their future in the cup? Mm-hmm. And then, long time ago, about, might be about 35 years ago, we had the neighbors and in Iran, when we were living in Iran, we had a very close neighbors and then Always we were sitting together and gathering and few neighbors together. And then she was telling the future from the cops, from the coffee cups. And then on that time, once she told me, please Nahid, I cannot see any good things in your cup. Please don't become upset. But I think you have to go and see your mother and ask her and you know this week you go visit your mother because my mother was the oldest person in the family and then I said okay for sure I talk to my mother every day and then anyway I went to Hasmin and because I went one day before my weekend And then I called to cousin, my husband. I said, why you are not coming? And he said, no, Nahid, I cannot come today. Uh, Mr. X is sick and he is in hospital. And I said, what happened? Why he is in hospital? And he started to cry, my husband. And I said, please tell me the truth. If something happened, I have to come back. And he said, 
he passed away. He was so young and he was the husband of the lady which she told me the fortune. And that's why since then I don't like the fortune telling because sometimes they see their future but they return it to you and sometimes it is opposite. It's happened for themselves and they tell you it's happened for you. So that's why since then I had a very bad memory about this fortune things. Okay, Maman. Just those dreams stay with you, 
if something similar happened to you the next day, the next week, the next month. No, sometimes we, we are saying sixth sense. Do you know we have got five cents? Mm -hmm. And those people which before something happened, they understand and they feel it. We were saying those people has got the sixth sense. So sometimes it's happened to me. Sometimes really it's happened to me. Before more. Not now. I do not dream any much. You know, not, not much. Just... I don't know. I can remember really. Yes, I saw my mother just a few months ago. It wasn't very, just it was a ceremony, I mean. And she was cooking something. But she wasn't happy. I can remember. I can remember her face wasn't happy. No, no, no. 